Good morning. Welcome to Bible class from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. Uh, welcome to all of you who are here in the gym and those who are listening on KFUO either by their computer or by their radio. Today we're going to go our, into a continued study of the Gospel of St. John, the fifth chapter. I'd like to begin with a prayer. We thank you, Heavenly Father, through your dear Son, Jesus, that you've brought us to the beginning of another Lenten season. We pray that during this season you would give us a spirit of humility, a spirit of repentance, that you would draw us beneath the cross of Jesus, that we might see and know and believe the power of your love, that we might be blessed with the forgiveness of sins. And so today, as we come to study your word, we pray that we might not just read it, but that we might mark it, learn it, inwardly digest it, that we might hear and see our Savior Jesus, that your word might truly abide in us. Heavenly Father, bless our time together as we come in the name of your Son, our Savior Jesus. Amen. As indicated, we're in the Gospel of St. John, the fifth chapter. We read the opening portion of it last week. I want to share a, a few thoughts before we get into it about the entire Gospel of John and kind of bring us all up to speed. Have you ever noticed how the Gospel of John reads much like a John Grisham novel? You know, John Grisham has a, a masterful way of carefully crafting a story. And there's always a, a trial going on, a courtroom scene, and we watch the lawyers skillfully making their case, presenting all of the evidence. But in the John Grisham novels, we're already privy to some of the stuff that's going on in the background. And so we, we watch all of this happening, and it seems as though we're arriving at a verdict before the verdict is actually given. And then the verdict confirms what, what we've thought all along. Or there's a twist in the story, and it's not the verdict that we assumed we were going to get. John Grisham is a human being who is very gifted in writing. The Gospel of John, however, tells the story in the same kind of way. And as you read this, you, you, you've got to believe that it's not just the words of, of a very gifted writer, but there's something going on in the background here. There is the work of the Holy Spirit who is bringing all of this together. As I read the Gospel of John, it confirms for me again and again that John, this, this fisherman, didn't have the ability to tell this story all by himself. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And what we're hearing is not just John's words, but the Word of God. And so St. John is carefully making his case, helping us to arrive at a verdict. And he begins his account in that beautiful prologue, we all know it, but he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what is John hinting at 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 the very first part of his gospel. Who is this Jesus? That's the point he's trying to make. Who is this Jesus? And I'll let you in on the secret right at the beginning. There's no question in John's mind, nor should there be in our mind, that this Jesus is the Son of God. And so then John goes about making his case, laying out his evidence, bringing it all together. In chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine. The first sign, John calls this, the sign of what? This was the first sign that Jesus had power over creation. He changed water into wine. He changed physical chemistry of the created world, just like his heavenly Father and then, in chapter 2, John went, uh, Jesus went into the temple and he cleansed the temple. And what did he call it? 
father's house. You've made my father's house a house of trade, he says. And, and so Jesus is clearly saying, I am the Son of God. In chapter 3, Jesus taught Nicodemus. And what did he really teach him about? The Father's plan of salvation. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Who is Jesus? The Son of the Father, who knows the plan, who's carrying out the plan of salvation. In chapter 4, he, he goes to the woman at the well. And one of the key words there is, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Why did he have to pass through Samaria? Because he was concerned about one Samaritan woman. And through that one Samaritan woman, many, many Samaritans would come to believe. This was all part of the Father's plan, not just for Jewish people, but for all people. Then, continuing in chapter 4, he healed an official sign, and it's called his second sign. And how did Jesus perform this miracle? He simply spoke a word, and it was so. There is power in the words that Jesus speaks because he is the Son of God. So John carefully selected all of the events in these opening chapters to convince us, leading us to the right verdict. And the right verdict is, Jesus is the Son of God. Then comes chapter 5. And now there's this drama within the drama. A trial within the trial. There's, there's conflict, and there's opposition, and the prosecution rises up to accuse Jesus. It begins with the story of the healing at the pool of Bethesda. When Jesus simply told a man, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And the man did. And as we heard last week in verses 10 through 16, the Pharisees began to rebuke the man for carrying his mat on the Sabbath day, which was work. But they interrogated him. Who told you to take up your mat and walk? Who told you to do this work? Who gave you the authority to do that? They weren't concerned about who healed you. They weren't really interested at all about compassion. This man who had been paralyzed for 38 years was now walking around. Somehow they missed that piece of evidence. They were all concerned about the Sabbath. And so they began to build their case against Jesus. In fact, uh, verse 16 of chapter 5 reminds us that they were persecuting Jesus for doing this on the Sabbath. Now you see, it's not just the man that they're concerned about, but they're really concerned about Jesus. They accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. Not just by healing, which would have been work, but also they accused him of breaking the Sabbath by telling this man to take up his mat and walk, telling this man to break the, the Sabbath. What gave Jesus the authority to do what he was doing? And so in verses 17 and 18, where we'll begin our study today, Jesus began his defense. He lays out the big picture. He didn't raise any objection. He didn't he, he did allow all of their evidence. In fact, as we'll see, he even made their case for them. In verse 17, Jesus said, My father is working, and I'm working too. He argued that they really misunderstood the purpose of the Sabbath. Yes, God rested on the Sabbath day, and he built into his creation the gift of rest, because he knew that we needed rest. But certainly, God didn't take the day off. God doesn't need to rest. God isn't some 
some god like the deists who believe that, that God created the world and built into it all of the, the systems that would need to keep it going and then send it out into space. God is always working. And that's the, the word that Jesus uses here. It's a present. God is working continually. And I am working too, continually. And that's certainly in agreement with our Lutheran understanding of the first article of the Creed, isn't it? Luther said, I believe that God made me and all creatures, and he's given me all these blessings. But then he says, and he richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body and life. Every day God is working richly. God never takes a break. If he did, the world would fall apart. But even as the Heavenly Father is working, providing, protecting, guarding, so Jesus says, I am working too. What was Jesus claiming? I am. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Who am I? I am the Son of God. What gives me the authority to do this? I am the Son of God. No question what Jesus is claiming here. And they clearly understood Jesus' claim. This was blasphemy in their eyes. You know, what arrogance was this? They knew the law. The law said you shall have no other gods and now Jesus is making himself equal with God. He claims he is God. What arrogance from their perspective. And and what a warning for us. One of the, the words that they systematicians at the seminary always use as a Latin expression. In corvatus in se. In corvatus in se means turned in on ourselves. The basic sin behind all sin is this fact that we live as if God doesn't matter and as if we matter the most. We make ourselves God. If you think, this is an awful image, but imagine a toilet bowl. And the water swirls around and round and round and it sucks everything into itself. That's an accurate description of what we do when we make ourselves God. As if the whole world revolves around us. And that's what they were accusing Jesus of. Blasphemy. Making himself God. Their creed, which which they repeated all the time, said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now Jesus is saying he's equal with God. Is he another God? More than just blasphemy, they didn't understand the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. And so in this passage, Jesus has to spell out what the Holy Trinity looks like. Now pause for a moment, and and I would just say that there are some modern scholars who would claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. He always claimed that he was just a, a man, the Son of Man. And there are these crazy liberal scholars who believe that Jesus came to earth and lived a normal life and committed all kinds of sins and the Spirit entered him at baptism and so he became God and over the years the church just kept adding to the story to to make Jesus more than just another man. It's a bunch of hogwash. There is no question in this passage that Jesus claimed to be God. No question, from the very beginning, Jesus claimed to be God. And they understood that, and because they did, they were already asking for the death penalty. 
Let's pause for a moment. Any questions about what we've covered so far? You see where Jesus is coming from. Jenny? In Corvatus and say, liberal garbage. <laughs> you don't want to know. <laughs> yeah, some of the higher critical methods arrive at that conclusion. It's just out there. Other questions? All right. Let's look at Jesus' defense then. And those of you who have red-letter editions of the Bible may notice that now we begin a really long section that goes from chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 19, through the end of verse 47 and even beyond. And so this is Jesus' defense. He's making his claim that indeed he is equal with his Father. In 19 and 20, Jesus said, Truly, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel from the very beginning, Jesus is claiming divine authority. Truly, truly, I say to you. He uses it three times in this section out of 25 times in the Gospel of John. And what he's saying is, don't take earthly authority. Take my authority because this is the truth. Jesus did the same thing on the Sermon on the Mount. Throughout it, he goes, you have heard that it was said to men long ago, but I say to you. And that formula is repeated over and over again throughout Jesus' preaching on the mountain. He's doing the same thing here. I have divine authority, and I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. So now he's getting into the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. And what he's saying is, I've never acted independently of the Father. There's this perfect obedience he does what he sees his father doing. He participates in all of this. And there is perfect unity between the father and the son. The father loves him. With a love that began before the creation of the world. The father shows him what he's doing. And again, Jesus participates. Then he says, there are greater things that the Father and I are going to be doing so that you might marvel. What, in other words, what he's saying is, you ain't seen nothing yet. You think the, these little miracles that I've done, changing water into wine, healing somebody, you think that's important? You haven't seen a thing. For as the Father raises the dead, he says in verse 21, and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. His Father is the author and creator of life. His Father gives life, and his Father can raise even the dead. And Jesus is making the case, you folks know the Old Testament. You're supposed to be experts in the You know that God raised the dead. You know that Elijah and Elisha raised the dead. That was all God's working, and you acknowledge that. But then Jesus said, I will too. Soon they would see, not in the Gospel of John, but they would see the raising of Jairus' daughter. They would see the raising of, of the widow's son at Nain. But in Gospel of John, they would see the resurrection of Lazarus in chapter 11. and That would be the straw that would break the camel's back. It was after that, immediately after the raising of Lazarus, they plot to kill Jesus. 
You're going to see things. You're going to see me restoring life, raising the dead. But you're not going to accept it as a sign from God. Verse 22. The Father judges no one, but He has given judgment, all judgment, to the Son. And so His Father has made Him the judge, and judgment day is coming. Jesus is claiming, on that day, I will be the judge of all. Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Just like his Father. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 42 God said, I will not give my glory to another. There is no one else who is worthy of honor, no one else who is worthy of worship, no one else who is worthy of praise. But Jesus is claiming the Father honors me and gives me all honor. And you'll see. As St. Paul wrote in Philippians, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that I am Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we come to verse 24. And I think that this is one of the key verses in this entire Gospel of John, certainly one of the key verses in this section. Another truly, truly. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Amen, amen. With divine authority, I am telling you something that is absolutely critical. It has to do with the power of God's word. It's a creating, life-giving word. Jesus promised eternal life to all who hear and believe His Word. His Word has the power to give this life. And notice the tenses here. He says, whoever hears my Word and believes in Him who sent me has eternal life. It's not just something in the future. Right now, you have eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has already passed from death into life. Eternal life is yours and mine right now. Over the years, there have been people who have asked me, how do I know? How can I be certain of my salvation? I think I'm going to heaven. I, I, I think it's all true, but how... How can I know? How can you be so certain when you say you have eternal life? That's the promise Jesus made right here. It's already happened. You've passed from death to life. That's what God says also in John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Done deal right now. You're living eternally. Pause again. Any thoughts or questions? Yeah, bud. Back on verse 20. Right. But that he is actually saying what God is doing and he's he's doing it too. Right. There's there's a connection between Jesus seeing all that the Father does and he is doing the same thing. He's participating in all of it. It's not not that they're acting independently and that Jesus is somehow a, a lesser God who's following the Father's lead. No, he sees what the Father is doing and he's involved in all of it as well. Other questions, thoughts? Yep. Mark? Mark? 
Jesus is true God, and yes, he can do anything. Is he talking about um, not being as, as total God, but somehow in submission to his Father is the question. Okay, right. Right. All right. Right. Is this a sign of submission in, in verse 19? That, that as true, true God, true man, he is submitting himself to the Father's will and there are certain things he doesn't know or can't do. I think it's pointing out the perfect unity in the Trinity. That he never acts independently. He's always in tune with his Father's will. And he's, he sees what his Father's doing and he says, I can't do anything but what my Father does. Because we're one. That follow? Yes. All right. The Father has given the responsibility for judgment to the Son. On the last day, it's not going to be a, uh, everybody up there, the, the Trinity is going to be sitting and judging. Jesus is going to be the judge on judgment day. So the Father has said, this is, this is your responsibility. This is part of the work that you do. Only the Son became human. Only the Son will be the judge. The Spirit has his work. The Father has his work. They're all working together as one. It's part of this mystery of, of the Holy Trinity. How can God be three and yet one and yet all of them acting and yet all of them acting in perfect unity with one another? One of those mysteries that we really can't understand, but Jesus kind of lays that out in this section to help them understand that while he's making himself equal with God, it's right. It's the Holy Trinity. He's part of it. Well, absolutely. Right. 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 He, is, he wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He's sincerely teaching these people. He's not attacking them. He's hoping to help them see too and believe. Moving on to verses 25 through 29. Another truly, truly. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For the as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Another statement of his authority, I say to you, truly, truly, an hour is coming. It's already here now, because the kingdom of God is breaking in at this even moment as, as Jesus is speaking. And this kingdom of God applies not just to the living, but it also applies to those who have already died. They will hear his voice as well. For as the Father has life in himself, the author and giver of life again, he has 
given the same authority to the Son. And so Jesus says, I give life. I give life to those who have already died. And there are two resurrections. There are those who are physically dead. And you're going to see, I will raise the dead. I will rise too. But there are also those who are spiritually dead. And they will hear. And they will live. And once again, is there a reference here to holy baptism? But then there is the judgment still to come at the last day when all who were in the tombs will hear and come out. And Why does Jesus have this authority? Because as we've been questioning already, because, verse 27 says, because I am the Son of Man. And there he's not claiming he's just another human being. He's taking him back once again to the Old Testament vision of the prophet Daniel. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. And listen again to what Daniel saw in a vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom and all peoples, nations and languages will serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is claiming, I'm the one, Daniel saw. I'm the one who's got dominion and power and glory and and all nations and peoples will be gathered together to serve me. and I will be the judge on that day according to God's will. Now, now think of this in in trial terms. You know, they're they're kind of prosecuting Jesus. He's giving his, his defense. There's this trial going on. What's Jesus claiming here? I'll be the judge. On the last day, I'll be the judge. Thoughts about this. You see how Jesus just keeps amping up the evidence, laying out one claim after another. He is the Son of God, and He's given all of this evidence. But as we're often cautioned, Evidence can also be used against you. And so I believe that as Jesus is laying out all of this evidence in favor of believing that he is the Son of God, they are going to take all of this evidence and use it against him. Jesus is kind of making the case for them. They get it. He is the Son of God. He's claiming to be the Son of God. They didn't understand that he was, but he's claiming to be the Son of God. And in their minds, this was blasphemy. All right, ready to move on. So Jesus then, oh, see him. Seeing and hearing, uh, we'll come to that, okay? Seeing and hearing are are two important words that Jesus is going to turn on them real clearly. All right, Ruth? Mm -hmm. If they hear with their heart, they will live eternally, right? And that's, that's going to be the case that Jesus makes. The problem they're having is they're not hearing, they're not seeing what Jesus sees. All right? 
So Jesus began calling witnesses on his behalf. He says in verse 30 and 31, I can do nothing on my own. That's not subordination at all. It's because of the unity of the Trinity. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony isn't true. So in Jewish eyes, there has to be more than one testimony. There has to be the witness of two or three others to make sure that the testimony is true. So Jesus is saying, I, just, I judge justly before you pass judgment think you need to take a look at these other witnesses that are saying the same thing that I'm saying. Because this is the truth. Verse 32 through 35, there is another. I think, hold off for a minute on who this other is. Who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John... And he is born witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Who is a witness? John the baptizer is a witness. In the opening chapter 1, Jesus or John says, he was sent from God to be a light. He was not the light, but he was a witness to the light. And now Jesus is calling on that testimony. He's saying, you listen to John. Many of you went out to be baptized by John. You understood that John's role was preparing the way for the Messiah. We, we've had the conversation. Who are you? Are you John? Are you Elijah? Who are you? The one who's preparing the way for the Messiah. So they understood John's testimony on that day when he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's John's testimony? Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Verse 36, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The works that I'm doing. This is why John calls them signs. Not just miracles, but signs. Signs pointing to what? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Son of God. In this, I think Jesus could also have pointed to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of these Jews. Nicodemus came to him by night because he didn't want the rest of the Jews to see him coming. But what was the question he first asked? Teacher, we know that you've come from God. For no one can do these things that you're doing unless God was with him. Nicodemus says, we know. Who was the we? Perhaps some of the people that Jesus is talking to right here. You know. You all testified. You, you yourselves know that I am the Son of God. Verses 37 through 41, there's another. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen. Those are the two words I reminded you of. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. There's the testimony of this other, 
It's the testimony of the Father that's witnessed throughout all of Scripture, through the Word. And so he says, you study those Scriptures, but you haven't learned. You've never heard. You've never seen. The Word doesn't abide in you. And and so back to... The question before, what, what is the hearing and the seeing? Jesus is making clear, you study the Scriptures, but you misinterpret them. You, you've never seen, you've never heard the things that I've seen, the things that I've heard, the things that I know to be the truth. And so it's clear that God's Word does not abide in you. You study the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And that's right. Absolutely right. Scripture has life. But those scriptures testify to me. Yet you refuse to come to me because of your own stubborn unbelief. And ultimately Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter what you people think. He wasn't interested in earthly power or glory or fame the way that they were. What my father thinks, that's the testimony that counts. So Jesus lays out the witness of John the baptizer, the witness of the signs, the witness of the father throughout all of scripture, and as we'll see in a minute, also Moses, who's involved in the testimony to Jesus. Questions or comments before we go on? Yep. Right. 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 Father and Son, did they believe in, in the Trinity? I don't think they did. I think God was revealing himself in the Old Testament as a triune God. But they really didn't pick up because they were always referring to Yahweh, the Lord. Right, yep, right. There's a father, if he's the son of God, there must be a father, right? Yes. Yep, that's their creed, right? The Lord our God is one. And somehow they. They missed three and one. No, and that and that's the trick. You would you would think he's talking about John, but where he's really going is talking about the Father. That's the one that really matters. You know, you you build your witnesses until you got this major hammer that just you throw down. It's not just John. It's not just the signs. It's the testimony of all of Scripture. It's my Father who's witnessing. Yep. That Jesus is making, yes. But, but again, the, the twist in all of this is that here's the story within the story, the trial within the trial. John is... Jesus is saying all these things to the Jews, but John is also saying these things to all of us. As John Grisham does, you know, that he works, works it so that we're being drawn into the story too. Ruth? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yep. Right, let's read on. Verses um, 42 and following. There's a, a twist that rises. And here it begins as Jesus starts accusing them. He goes from offense, I mean from defense to offense. He says, but I know that you don't have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. 
How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? You think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my word? Now the conflict between Jesus and, and the Jews goes, goes beyond just this blasphemy charge. He's accusing them of not really understanding the Torah, the writings of Moses. Moses is yet another witness, but they're not getting it. He begins by accusing them, saying, I know you don't have the love of God in you. Wait a minute, they, they knew the law. The law could be summarized by, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, they had just demonstrated that they didn't love their neighbor. They were attacking this paralytic. Why weren't they rejoicing? Where was their mercy, compassion? Where was their love for him? They didn't love their neighbor. So Jesus says, I know love of God isn't in you. Then he goes on to say, you have no love for me. You won't receive me. So you couldn't possibly love the Father who sent you. Now, they thought Jesus was accusing them, but Jesus says, I'm not the one who's accusing you. You put so much trust in the, in the, the law. You think the law is the way in which you're going to be saved by keeping all of the commandments? No, that's not the purpose of the law. The law always accuses us. You don't even understand the commandments. You don't understand the will of God. And so I know, Jesus the judge says, you don't have the love of God in you. You don't know Moses. You don't understand the law. So here comes the conclusion. Got to move on. The, the conclusion has to be, there can be no other verdict. Don't you don't you all agree with me, Jesus would say to the Jews? Don't you agree with me, people sitting in Bible class this morning? Don't you all see the, the only verdict that can be arrived at is that I'm the Son of God. I'm exactly who I claim to be. Just when you think the, the argument is over, the story has reached its climax, there's more. The conflict just goes on and on. The Jews won't let it drop. As you read chapters 6 and 7 and 8, you start getting into the I am claims. I am the bread of life. I am living water. I am the light of the world. I am from above. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus keeps making this claim over and over again. I am the Lord. I am God. They just keep hammering at him and hammering at him until in chapter 8, verse 59, they pick up stones. Now they're ready to kill Jesus. He's made their case for them. He's shown them who he's claiming to be, and they're accusing him of blasphemy for doing so. How could they possibly have arrived at that conclusion? That's what Jesus is talking about in chapter 5. You have never heard. You have never seen. You don't have my words abiding in you. You search the scriptures because you think that in them they, that you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness to me. They were absolutely right. Scripture has the answer. Jesus is the Son of God, but you people won't accept it because you don't see, you don't hear, you don't have the Word abiding in you. And this is where the story gets kind of scary because what are we doing here this morning? 
We're studying the scripture because we think that in them is eternal life. But have we heard? Have we seen? Does God's word abide in us? And so John is involving us. He's drawing us into this trial within a, a trial as he tells the story. And what he's really got us doing is examining ourselves. What is it that John's trying to communicate to us? What is Jesus communicating to us? What does our Heavenly Father want from us? It's for us to hear the Word and to see Jesus, who would be convicted in trial and sentenced to die for us. To see Jesus, who would indeed overcome death and rise again with a promise of life for you. To see Jesus who will come again, no longer the defendant, but when he comes again, he will be the judge. Is that a scary thing? Because it's not, because here's the greatest twist of all. It's the precious gospel. Go back to verse 24. Look at it again with me. Truly, truly, with all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. What's the final verdict in this trial? You've got eternal life. So the Gospel of John goes on. And the summation arises in chapter, John 20, verses 20 and, uh, 30 and 31. Why did John tell this story? Why does he lay this all out for us? Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What's the whole book of John about? Right there, John says it. What's this argument, this trial that's going on? What's it all about? John says it. What does our faith consist of? This one thing. that You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, exactly who he claims to be, and that you might have life in his name. Bud? Right. Okay, how do you get to the point where Jesus is being revealed in the Pentateuch? And I, th- I think it's there. Who is Yahweh? Who is the God who revealed himself in the burning bush? Who was the God who led them by the fire, uh, pillory, fi- pillory fire? <laughs> Fiery pillar. Who, who was there all the way along? Jesus is saying, it's clear. It's me. I'm there. I'm involved. I, again, I think it's a, a fascinating story. If you look at it, that's the story within the story, and we're already privy, privy to all of the knowledge, all of the facts, all of the details, right from the very prologue. And then the story is told throughout. There's this trial within the trial. But the ultimate verdict is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, believing you have life in his name. Oh, yeah. I think he's, he's doing that. Right. He keeps sending them back to the Old Testament. There's Moses. There's all the, these testimonies throughout. It's before Abraham was, I, I am. 
just drawing out the Old Testament. Because I, I think John was thinking in Old Testament thought as, as a, a Jew himself. And he got what Jesus was claiming. Shall we close with a prayer? Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for your word which makes us wise into salvation through faith in our Savior Jesus. We pray that we might see, we might hear, that we might have your word abiding in us today and every day of our lives as, as we go back into the world. Help us to testify. Help us to witness to the truth that indeed Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Help us to testify to the truth that we will not perish but have eternal life in him. and Let us live our lives in accordance with that word. Pray these things and all things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Go in peace.